On today's episode of the Read Option Podcast, we're going to dive into the big news over the weekend, the Matthew Stafford and uh, Jared Goff mega trade the week before the Super Bowl, which is something I've never really seen before. So we're going to get into some of that, the contract stuff, uh, just how much they gave for Jared Goff. There's a lot to get into in addition to what we can expect from a football perspective uh, between those two guys and those two teams now with new faces of their franchise. Uh, after that, we're going to we haven't gotten into any NBA stuff yet this year uh, on this podcast. So just some, you know, quick hitters, things I've noticed as we're starting to make the transition. Obviously, it's Super Bowl week, and we will make sure that we get all the Super Bowl action covered for you here on our next pod, which should be coming out either Wednesday or Thursday. And lastly, uh, there was a really good documentary that came out uh, over the last couple of weeks. I believe that the final episode came out two weeks ago. Uh, but that was the Tiger Woods documentary on HBO and a really fascinating guy from one of the biggest sports figures that, that we've ever had uh, in our society and in our sports culture. So I'm really excited to get into all of that. It's coming up right now on the Read Option Pod. Bring it in. Welcome. Episode number three of the Read Option I alluded to in the intro there. Hey, we got a great episode coming out today. Uh, we're going to go into a whole bunch of stuff. Like I said before, Jared Goff, NBA, Tiger Doc, and even a little bit of the Josh Heupel to Tennessee as the new head coach there, the Vols, uh, and kind of a bigger picture thought I have to wrap up the pod today on college football as a whole and what this trend we're starting to see here. But uh, first things first is the big news. Jared Goff or Matthew Stafford. Uh, in my time being an NFL fan, I honestly cannot remember ever having a situation where we have a quarterback trade like this happen two months before the league season starts. And on top of this, this is this is pre-Super Bowl. You know, this is the week before the Super Bowl, and we're seeing a deal of that kind of magnitude come down the pipes. Um, just everything that involved in this is interesting as well, because. Uh, we all know the Jared Goff contract isn't the most desirable in all of sports and, and understandably so, but at the same time, it's a lot to give up just to move on from a contract. And in addition, you are bringing in Matthew Stafford, but you're bringing in a 33 year old quarterback quarterback who by and large has been incredibly productive throughout his entire career, right? We're, we're talking about a guy who started playing here 2009. All right. So he's been in the NFL for a long, long time and has been a really productive player. You know, he's coming up on 50,000 passing yards already, uh, 282 touchdowns. And he did it all for a franchise that has long been considered one of the struggling, you know, franchises the NFL's really ever had. You know, being a Detroit Lions fan, I don't know if he could pay me enough money to go be a Detroit Lions fan. I mean, it's, it's absolutely brutal. And yet Matthew Stafford did everything he could. And throughout his time there, he never had a defense that complemented what he could do offensively. And it was always him at the end of the game, two minutes left, taking a team down the field and, and, and slinging the ball deep, whether it's to, you know, Calvin Johnson that we saw for, for a long time and throughout his time in Detroit, but even more recently in the, the Kenny Galladay's and Marvin Jones Jr. And, and some of these really, really good, talented wide receivers He's never had the running game to complement it. He's never had a defense to complement it. And on top of that, you know, Jim Caldwell was a pretty good coach, uh, and, and he got the short end of the stick there when, when it came to leaving Detroit. But even when they brought in guys like Jim Schwartz to be their head coach, and, and you're talking Jim Schwartz is Jim Schwartz is a defensive-minded coach. You know, Jim Schwartz is not the guy to – or let me put it this way. You would think Jim Schwartz would be the guy to help balance out a team that that needed a good defense but they never really got there and they had Ndamukong Sue there plugging up the middle for a, a, the majority of his career and obviously in what we would consider to be his prime before he signed that massive contract down in Miami so when you look at where Matthew Stafford's coming from and wanting to work his way out of Detroit Detroit also has a new head coach a new GM and they're trying to change the culture there. And the one interesting thing about this is it doesn't seem like there's been any kind of bad blood. I mean, you have Dan Orlovsky, who was Matthew Stafford's backup on Twitter, 
several times. He he sent out like the eyeball emojis and did a you know kind of like watch out for a big week going into uh, this upcoming week. And before we even got there, you know, the trade happens and we send it out. Now the athletic reports from a league source that there were eight offers made to the Lions. But this is where it gets kind of interesting because supposedly every single trade offer had at least a first-round draft pick in it. No other offers had two first-rounders and a third-rounder that's going to go this year. Um, And you're also getting Jared Goff, which I get the contract's bad, but if you're Detroit, you're not trying to win games immediately necessarily. And for all you know, this guy, Jared Goff, played in a Super Bowl two years ago. You know, we were coming up on the two-year anniversary of Jared Goff and that Los Angeles Rams team, then ultimately kind of laying an egg offensively. But that wasn't Jared Goff. You know, that was McVeigh getting his butt whooped by Bill Belichick, which who I mean, who in the NFL has that not happened to? It's just unfortunate now that this stigma has kind of been attached to Jared Goff. And and look, the guy turns the ball over, he fumbles the ball. He's not a bad quarterback. He's really not. You know, we forget how quickly Jeff Darlington pointed this out from ESPN. You know, we forget that he outdueled Patrick Mahomes. The game was supposed to be Mexico City, and the field had a, had a bunch of really bad turf problems, and guys were worried about getting injured, so ended up not playing the game there. I think there was like a Shakira concert uh, out there that was being done first, and it just absolutely destroyed the surface. Jared Goff goes out uh, in that game, which I think was played – uh, in the Coliseum because the Rams hadn't had the new stadium yet. And he beat Patrick Mahomes in one of the greatest shootouts that we've ever seen in the NFL on Monday night football. Like this guy can sling the ball. What's weird though, is that progressively since the Super Bowl, and I don't know if McVay has just changed the way he thinks about offense. And, and there's a lot of bigger questions that, you know, we may not have the answer to, but it is surprising that Sean McVay was so quick to move off from Jared Goff and change that offense because they have the playmakers, they have the running backs, they have a good tight end, they have a good offensive line. But so much of what the Rams did was quick passes, short passes, and running the football. Now, I get not wanting to stretch the field when you don't have ultimate confidence in your quarterback to protect the football. And ultimately, I think that's where this, you know, kind of landed. And we saw when John Walford got the start. Uh, even though Jared Goff was able to play. And, and look, he had screws in his hands. So I'm not going to hold what Jared Goff did in the playoffs this year, which, by the way, included beating Russell Wilson in Seattle. Uh, I'm not going to hold that against him. You know, Playing with a broken thumb is, is with screws in it, nonetheless, is something I can't even imagine. But there is this kind of narrative about him, which I think is just completely unfair because we're two years removed from seeing this guy play in the biggest stage in the world and the biggest football game in the world against one of the greatest tandems that we've seen in Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and what ultimately would be their final Super Bowl together. So now when you look at the on the field side of this, there is potential for this to be a win-win trade. There's potential for getting two first round picks in 2022 and 2023, as well as a 2021 third rounder. So this upcoming year, that is a lot of potential. You know, that could be three stars. That could be three guys, especially the two first rounders, but that could be three guys who immediately help impact a now young and fresh faced football team because they have entirely new leadership between uh, Dan Campbell and the new GM there out in Detroit. So on top of that, Detroit is left with four years and $106 million, which on its surface actually isn't that bad. Uh, Remember, Kirk Cousins signed a three-year, I think it was 88 or three years, 96 million. It was three years and 96 million when he went to Minnesota. Um, So a per year value, this is actually not a terrible deal. You know, we're talking about $26 million a year for a guy who's already played in a Super Bowl and is 26, 27 years old. Um, you know, he, he's played five years in the league. The first year wasn't fair to hold against him with that last Jeff Fisher run. But I don't know. This this is a very interesting uh, storyline. And, and in offseason, that's going to be absolutely chock full of storylines. This was kind of the one that I think most people had their eye on right off the bat because people were curious as to what would be Matthew Stafford's next spot. So if Jared Goff is in a new situation where, yeah, maybe he is able to do well, maybe they are able to hold on to either – Kenny Galladay or Marvin Jones Jr., both of which are scheduled to become free agents this year. Jared Goff could put together 
a nice, you know, comeback season. Uh, and, and I hope that for Jared Goff. He's he, by all accounts, he seems like a great guy. Uh, and, and his photographic memory that everybody was kind of freaking out about when he was first coming into the NFL, like, oh my God, this guy's going to be able to remember everything. And maybe that's why he and McVay got along so well. But ultimately, you know, the Rams realized that they need someone who can do more. Um, and, and at this point in his career, how much more are you getting from Matthew Stafford? Uh, I would argue a, a, a decent step up. I think Stafford's more talented, but he's also more injury prone. You know, Jared Goff, since becoming the full-time starter, has only missed two games in five years. And now granted that first year was only seven games. Uh, but you're talking about four and a half seasons missing two games. Matthew Stafford's missed a bunch of time over the last couple of years. And he, and this is not taking anything away from him because the guy's a warrior. Uh, there was a stat that Hembo put out, who's one of the ESPN producers and statisticians, that he had made 131 out of 131 potential starts over a, a seven-year span, and oh, which is already incredible. But then he adds the list of injuries that he had throughout that process. And there was about nine different things that he played through without ever missing a start. So you're talking about an absolute warrior, a guy who, who really is not afraid to, to absolutely give it everything he has. And, and that's what he did for Detroit. And you're going to put him down in offense and a coach and a, a team with a very good defense uh, in the LA Rams where he can be successful because the core pieces of that team in LA are all signed in a contract for the next like four years. You know, they're going to have Aaron Donald there. Uh, they're going to have Cooper cup and Robert Woods there. So they have a window here, but they're going all in. They're going absolutely all in and hoping that they're going to be able to stretch the field without worrying about turnovers as much. And they're going to be able to do the things all that they've done already to be successful. I mean, this is a 10 and six football team that threw the ball down the field as little as anybody outside of the Baltimore Ravens. So now they get a guy who historically has been known to push the ball down the field. Uh, you know, the amount of 4,000 yard seasons that Matthew Stafford has had. Uh, I'm just looking at the stats right now. He had a 5,000 yard season in 2011 he was almost at 5,000 yards in 2012, but you look down the lines, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, now eight seasons, over 4,000 passing yards. Um, that is a guy who likes to throw the football. And I think Sean McVay is going to do everything he can to, to make sure that he can optimize whatever is left of Adam of uh, Matthew Stafford. The only question now regarding Stafford is, can he stay healthy? because he's not young enough to be able to warrior through those pains and fight through those pains. He, he really needs a great offensive line play and a good running game. Because if, if he's getting, you know, smacked around back there, this trade could be a disaster for the Rams, especially considering that they have not had that last first round draft pick that the Rams have had was Jared Goff in 2016. They're not scheduled to have another first round draft pick unless they trade up for one until 2024 that's three years away that is three four drafts from now will be the next time that the rams are scheduled to have a first round pick that's a long time to go without getting you know bites at that apple those those guys in the first round are first rounders for a reason because of how talented they are now to this point we've seen this has kind of been the model for the rams you know send away Top-level draft picks get me established guys in here now that I know I can win with, and we will worry about the rest of it later, which is a ballsy move. It's a, it's a gamble, an absolute gamble on their part. But we'll see if it ends up working out. My, my prediction, and look, we still have a whole offseason to go. I think they're going to be a good team. But how many more wins past 10-6 and six are you getting with Matt Stafford? Probably... One and a half. So we're talking about, you know, taking a team to from 10 wins to 12 wins. I mean, that's a jump. That's hosting a playoff. That's hosting playoff games. But is it enough to make the sacrifice of the long-term future or at least the muddying of the waters of what your long-term future looks like? Uh, and ultimately, if they don't win a Super Bowl, it will go down as a, as a terrible trade. There's a lot of question marks. And on top of it, they are so hamstrung when it comes to their cap situation 
between the Todd Gurley contract, which they still owe money on $8 million, and now this Jared Goff trade, they're looking at $30 million in dead cap money from this year. Not a lot of owners are okay with that. And I don't think McVay's on the hot seat, but Les Need, that general manager out in LA, he most definitely is on the hot seat if this doesn't work out. And if you're Detroit, you're sitting there thinking, all right, cool, I get two first-round draft picks, a third-round draft pick this year to get you know in a, more guys in this first year for this culture that Dan Campbell's trying to build. By the way, a third-round draft pick is, is very valuable. And I think people are looking at it because some of the other pieces is just a throw-in. But the Rams could find somebody in the third round that could help them this year. And then when you look back and realize that, oh, yeah, wait, all the other offers were basically nothing more than a first-round pick, I look at this trade and realize, man, I, I think the Rams just vastly overpaid here. Now, look, you, you're paying because you know Detroit has to pick up that $100 million contract. And it's $100 million guaranteed left on that deal. So we'll see what ends up happening. And it seems as though Detroit thinks that Jared Goff could be their guy, and, and he is – held highly in a lot of circles in the NFL. Uh, truly, he is. Now, what that does to Detroit's salary cap situation and, and how they're able to develop this culture, uh, we'll have to see. But if you have a guy that you think can be a franchise quarterback and you believe in him, and it's clear that other people in the league believe in him too, and you can pick up assets like that, you know, it, it might be worth the gamble. Again, it's, it's the news that dominated the headlines. I think there's a world where this ultimately is good for both sides. You have four years left if you're the Detroit Lions uh, and $100 million. That, that is a very doable cap hit. Uh, that, that is very manageable. But the Rams, they, they need it to work. And credit to them because it takes a, a big old set of balls there. It's going to be fun to watch. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, we're going to come back here. We're going to hit on the NBA. And, you know, maybe a little bit of times are changing here. Maybe we're uh, moving on from the point guard-driven, forward-driven NBA. Not likely. But there is something interesting. We'll be back. All right, now, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Actually, a lot of it. We're going to move from the NFL to the NBA. You know, it's, it's interesting every year – as the football season starts to die down, you know, you, you pull in a couple of games here and there. And, and if you're a fan of one team in particular, you know, you're really following them tightly, but ultimately our, our society is still so f heavily football oriented when it comes to sports and our sports culture, that it's not really until football's over that you see a lot of people turn their attentions fully. You know, and the same goes for college basketball, you know, college basketball doesn't really start to get going until, uh, I say Duke and UNC is usually the unofficial start of college basketball season once college football and everything kind of wraps up and the beginning of conference play kicks in. Now, uh, this year, obviously, given the pandemic and everything else, uh, our timelines have been drastically altered. I mean, the bubble still doesn't even feel like that long ago, even though we're, we're coming up on about six months since the bubble. And I think that probably plays a role into why people haven't been watching it as much. You know, that, that off season felt like it was like two weeks, you know, in, in reality, it was like two and a half months before we started the NBA season again. And I think the players getting used to playing in big arenas that are empty, as opposed to the smaller venues, you know, that they were playing down in Disney world, but the NBA has been kind of all over the place. There's been a ton of like really interesting storylines, right? There's, there's a lot of, new faces obviously the James Harden thing was by far the number one topic of conversation in the NBA for the better part of know, two months at this point everyone has said pretty much anything that can be said about the James Harden situation I'm just glad he's not in Philly personally uh, I think if you're going to make that move the place that made the most sense was going to be Brooklyn and they've decided to go all in on this all offense and no defense to a point where they gave up 149 points, 149 points last night to the Washington Wizards, who have the second worst record in the NBA. They were 3-12 and going into that game last night. And here's the crazy thing. The Nets scored 147. So you had 149 to 147. It's one of the highest scoring games in NBA history. 
So they can score with the best of them. And that's obviously not what's going to be uh, called into question with this team in, in Brooklyn, but it is going to be called into question is what's going to happen come playoffs. You know, it, it's the same issues that we saw James Harden have in Houston. You know, you can spread the floor, shoot a lot of threes, score a lot of points, but the game changes. You know, there, there's never a sport that has as drastic a change from the, what the regular season is like as, as far as style of play uh, into the postseason. Like they're literally different sports. The NFL changes a little bit. You see teams maybe worry more about ball control or trying to run the ball and play good defense. But look, those are staples that you need in the NFL to win any game. Whereas in the NBA, you can play this analytical style of basketball where you shoot 33s a game. You shoot 30, hell more than that in a lot of cases. But as soon as you get to the playoffs and it's not crunching time, I mean, we're talking about literally what feels like a different game. And it, it's lockdown defense. It's good passing. It's so many things outside of just can you shoot threes and make layups. And you have to be able to hit – you have to have some sort of mid-range game. You have to be able to work the ball from different areas because that, that style of analytical basketball gets figured out over a seven-game series. And that's ultimately the biggest issue is if you are an Eastern Conference team when James Harden was there and you played James Harden and the Rockets twice a year, that gap between when you would play them, you wouldn't fully understand how to stop it. But if you get into a you know seven-game playoff series against that team, teams figure that out. They just do. Like Defensively, they figure out ways to stop it. They figure out what matchup they have that can either mitigate some of what James Harden is able to do and not. So the difference, though, with this Nets team is that the Nets also have Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And we're talking about three guys with – I think it's three out of the top six highest usage percentage or usage rate out of anybody who's ever played basketball <laughs> that, I mean, I don't know how much will, you know, his statistics get factored into that, but the old school versus the new school, but we're talking about guys who love to shoot the basketball. Now, so far, James Harden leading the league in assists right now. He's at 11. No one else is over 10, but as we know, James Harden has always been able to put up assists, even when he was still shooting that analytical, purely analytics three and layup kind of offense, he was still averaging double digit assists. So what comes down to now is how are those assists being divvied out? That's going to be the biggest decider how far this team goes and how valuable James Harden will be to the Nets. Now, Kevin Durant is a total game changer, but yeah, I mean, they, they were playing the Washington Wizards last night and Mo Wagner was just dunking on people like left and right. And they had arguably one of the top three to five rim protectors in Jared Allen, who they decided to trade away in as a part of that James Harden deal. So as good as their offense is, and it is amazing. It's incredible to watch. There should never be a situation in, the, in an actual regular season NBA game where you score 147 points and then you lose. That just can't happen. So that's my Nets rant. I wasn't going to talk about it, but I got into it. So I just kept it rolling here. Uh, the other thing, a couple of things here in, in just regards to what I've seen so far, this feels a little bit like a Renaissance for big men right now. If you look at player efficiency rating PER, it's ultimately like the best metric to figure out who's having, uh, you know, the most efficient, and productive season simultaneously. The top two guys are both centers. And by a pretty big margin, you have Nikola Jokic at 31.4 and Joel Embiid at 31.3. So we're talking about a tenth of a point difference between these two. The next on that list is Kawhi Leonard. All right, so Joel Embiid and Jokic are both a full three points ahead of the next guy on their list when it comes to PER. Now, it's still early and the sample size is still, you know, we're talking about high teens as far as amount of games played. But those two guys have been absolutely like lighting the world on fire. The game that Jokic had uh, two nights ago. Yeah, it was, or no, it was Sunday afternoon. It was yesterday afternoon. Jokic put up 47. He had 22 in the, in the first quarter. Uh, we're, we're seeing big men who, granted, are basically unicorns and guys that we haven't seen this type of, we haven't seen a guy who looks and moves like Joel Embiid, who can also shoot it, you know, 33 to 35% from three 
pretty consistently and still have a an 18 to 22 footer that he can hit on fadeaways who can back guys down and overpower them as just a pure bully ball kind of low post offensive player who still protects the rim on the other side. And then you go to Denver and what Jokic is doing and you have this seven footer who he looks great, by the way, he's lost some weight. He's trimmed down, but you got the seven footer who can dish the ball. Who's, who's got extraordinary vision. I mean, there's an argument to be made that outside of LeBron, you know, Jokic has, might have the best passing abilities and the best court vision of anybody in the league. Like he does things that the last big man who can, who's been able to pass like that was Bill Walton. And at that point, you're talking about the 70s and the 80s. But then you look at win shares, right? An estimate of the number of wins contributed by a player, okay? Two out of the top three are Jokic and Embiid, all right? And, and Jokic, by the way, is a staggering 4.4 when she has 4.4 win shares, which is crazy because number two on that list is Kawhi Leonard at 3.3. And then Joel Embiid after that at 3.2, no one else is over three. And yet Jokic is at a crazy 4.4. So what Jokic is doing, and you talk about the phrase most valuable player. I know our man, Scotty, he's brought this up before, you know, what does that term mean in the NBA? It's usually what's the best storyline plus statistics. Uh, you know, what, what is the old, if you add those two things together and you could put a chart up, whoever has the best storyline plus the statistics that go with it, that's who ends up winning the MVP. You're not necessarily who the most valuable player is right now. The most valuable player in the league is Jokic and it's not particularly close right now, uh, but sticking with Embiid and, and the Sixers first place in the Eastern conference, uh, they won a huge game Sunday night against Indiana without Joel Embiid. And, and we're talking about a fully healthy Indiana Pacers team, well, minus uh, Karis LeVert, who had that scary uh, kidney issue. But Joel Embiid makes such a difference because when he's on the court, I don't know if there's a team that can match up with what the Sixers have from a personnel perspective. And we saw them beat the Lakers. And I'll tell you what, a seven-game series of that, I'll take all day. Because Ben Simmons isn't the player LeBron is. He's not At this point, he's not even close. But defensively, he does, he does LeBron-ish things, right? He's he's a 6'10", 6'11", point guard with a, an extraordinary vision. Uh, he's an unbelievable athlete, not the greatest shooter, but understands how to, how to run an offense exceptionally well. And then on the other end of it, he's long. He's a crazy good athlete. He might be the best pure defender that the NBA has right now. So you have him up front. Okay, covering LeBron. And that's your matchup against LeBron, who is always going to be the hardest person to cover. And you say, all right, well, look, they have Anthony Davis. Well, Joel Embiid has gotten the best of Anthony Davis every single time they've ever played when he was in New Orleans and now with the Lakers. Joel Embiid has Anthony Davis's number. It's a real nightmare of a matchup if you're the Lakers. On top of it, too, Embiid's backup, Dwight Howard, just spent a year playing with Anthony Davis. You know, as much as I'm, I question some of Dwight Howard and, and what he can offer at this point as a role player, he knows Anthony Davis as well as anybody when it comes to what he does as a big man. And Dwight Howard's had a really good year so far in this supporting role. And then I haven't even brought up Tobias Harris. Tobias Harris is averaging like 20 and 10. He had 27 last night. He had a game winner against the Lakers. Tobias Harris is playing at a level that we had only ever seen when he was with the Clippers, when his coach was who doc rivers. And that is ultimately the biggest difference with this team. I liked Brett Brown. I, I was a big fan of his. I liked the way he talked. I love what he did to help get the Sixers to where they are today to deal with the amount of losing and all the, the shit that he had to get through to get the assets, to get Ben Simmons and to get Joel Embiid. Uh, and to an extent to be able to get Tobias Harris and when Jimmy Butler was here and, and, you know, I don't know if JJ Reddick comes to Philly without Brett Brown being there. And that's a huge testament, right? Like at that point in time, no one wanted to go to Philly. Philly was still stinking of the process and Brett Brown polished a turd for lack of a better phrase and made Philadelphia a, a destination town again for when it comes to the NBA and now with Embiid and Simmons and Tobias Harris and then on top of it you add Danny Green who was also on that Lakers team who also understands how they do things over there and what has to be the most underrated pickup of the league this year Seth Curry 
Seth Curry is lighting it up from three, shooting almost 50% from three. And there are points this year where he was shooting like 60% from downtown. He has the highest three-point percentage in NBA history, or him and Steve Kerr are always going back and forth, right? Because Steve Kerr's number's there, so he kind of plays jump rope with that line. Seth Curry does so much to open up what this team wants to do. This this Sixers team is, is good. And one thing that they do that not a lot of the other teams do is they play defense and really, really well. Going back to the matchup against the Lakers, you have the answer for LeBron. You have the answer for Anthony Davis. I, I don't know if there's a team that's going to be able to score 120 or 130 points on average against them, which is what you will need to beat them in a you know seven-game series. I think the rim protection between Embiid and Simmons – Tobias Harris is playing a three, but, you know, in, at least defensively, he's more of a four body. So you're getting size on there. Danny Green is, is incredibly versatile. He can guard one through three pretty easily. It's probably a little too short to be able to man up on the four, but depending on who's there, he can do it. And, yeah, Seth Curry is going to be a liability. But whether it's Shake Milton or Tyrese Maxey, they have a bench that I don't think we thought. And it's interesting looking back to where they were when the bubble ended and the, the, the absolute dismay and, and there was no hope. It was like, I can't believe we had all these assets and we had Jimmy Butler here who was playing in the NBA finals and, and we, we just fucked it all up. Like it was so depressing. Sixers Twitter, like I was really worried about him for a while, but I look now and you see the optimism and this team just has a special energy about them. Reminds me of, you know, every year you'll see teams. He's got, I don't know. It's just something about that team. And I really think there's something about the Sixers here. And we'll see what ends up happening. Um, you know, one of the guys who I think a lot of people would like to see on the move is J.J. Redick. And he's playing down there with New Orleans. Sixers are definitely a potential landing spot, as are the Nets and the Celtics. But J.J. Redick is playing on a team right now that didn't make sense from what they did in the offseason have who was supposed to be, you know, one of the highest anticipated potential, you know, superstars that we have in the NBA in Zion Williamson, but they did going out and getting, you know, Steven Adams, you know, and they, they drafted Jackson Hayes and it's a really weird team. And you also have Lonzo who can't shoot. It's just a team full of guys who can't shoot and they want to trade their only, you know, shooter. <laughs> And J.J. Redick, who is one of the best three-point shooters of all time. And I, and I get it. I think they realize, hey, you know what? This is probably not going to be our year. Um, we just want to develop Zion and get him as many reps as he can. But they got to make some serious changes in New Orleans because he's got absolutely no help around him right now. Uh, the other, I guess, last kind of note that I had here, you know, I went through my stuff on the Nets. It's just really great to see Steph Curry back. Uh, I'm a big Steph Curry fan. It's hard not to. I've made the comparison before in a lot of ways. He and Patrick Mahomes kind of you know mirror each other in their respective sports. And one thing that the two of them have is this unbelievable likability to them. You know, what Steph has done to change the game, you know, every kid growing up right now, whereas, you know, I was in the driveway hitting step backs from, you know, or turnaround jumpers, from the elbow, you know, or from the free throw line uh, or, or trying to take it to the basket. These guys are all going to be trying to shoot 30 footers. And what that has as far as the developmental side and the future of basketball, I mean, that's a debate I can have on another day because I think there probably are problems that arise from it. But the cultural impact that he had, as well as the like legitimate on the court impact of, of what the next couple of generations of basketball players are going to look like is absolutely fascinating and it's a testament to how fucking good he is like Steph Curry has changed basketball and because of him and James Harden to an extent and how good they are from deep uh, how easily they can hit these deep shots we've already seen a little bit with Trey Young you know Trey Young comes in and and hits 35 footers uh, 40 footers like He's, they're not afraid to take the shot. That that to them is a weapon that they have in their arsenal that they can go to if and when they need it. And, you know, after Kevin Durant got, you know, tore his Achilles in, in his last, you know, finals run with the Warriors before going to Brooklyn, and then Clay Thompson tearing his ACL in the next game, we haven't really seen the Steph Curry that we've wanted to see. 
uh, or at least that we got accustomed to seeing. And Steph had a bad hand injury last year, and they said, you know what? You've had a crazy five-year run of going to finals after finals after finals and going up against LeBron and Kawhi and all of this stuff, and you've won three of them. Um, you're going to rest up, and we're going to get you right moving forward. And they got James Wiseman uh, in that trade, and they still have Minnesota's first-round pick next year. Minnesota might be the worst team in basketball. Uh, it's crazy how, you know, the in a lot of ways, the rich get richer or maybe the lucky get luckier. But Minnesota, in that case, is horribly unlucky and just cannot get out of their own way. I mean, giving up that – and, look, you had to give the pick to get off of that Wiggins contract last year. I get it. But, man, they're going to have two – you know, the Warriors had their own pick this last year, and they were able to get Wiseman with it, finishing, you know, with the second overall pick. Good for Golden State. They get to be the benefactor of, you know, they might sneak into the playoffs this year. Right now they're eighth in the Western Conference. Uh, but this is just Steph with a bunch of young guys and Andrew Wiggins, you know, trying to carry this team. And look, they, they've done a good job with Andrew Wiggins. Andrew Wiggins is not a is not a bad player. You know, he's one of those guys where his his whole public image has taken him to a point where he is so undervalued now. You know, he was he was oh he's a bust, he's overrated. It's like no, the guy can average twenty points a game in the NBA and and still be a really productive player. He's just not ever going to be what people want him to be which was an all nba caliber talent and golden state now with a lot of assets moving forward are hopefully going to get clay back though i don't know if clay will ever be the same you know rupturing achilles on the opposite leg that you just recovered from an acl tear from i mean that's 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 a tough road back uh and draymond's game has aged way better than i thought it would uh he's definitely not the defensive uh, like force that he was physically, but he can still do a lot of really good things as far as distributing the basketball, uh, running the offense and putting guys in position defensively. He's an excellent communicator on the court. And I think that matters a lot for what this Golden State Warriors team is, is trying to accomplish. And I don't know what the future looks like. You know, if they end up getting the first overall pick and you can leverage that to, I don't know, say Sacramento, right? They get the first overall pick. Sacramento is sitting there at six or, or five. And they go, all right, we'll give you Andrew Wiggins in the first overall pick for Tyrese Halliburton or Buddy Heald. You know, maybe they want to keep Andrew Wiggins at that point. I don't know. Or maybe they want to draft Cade Cunningham coming out of college this year. Like, there's a lot of different directions that they can go. And it's interesting how Golden State seems to continually be able to put themselves in this kind of position, in addition to also getting a lot of luck. Uh, all right, I want to take a break here. That's uh, all I got on the NBA right now. And then I want to dive into the Tiger Woods documentary. Uh, there's a lot of lot of stuff to pull from it. And honestly, it just it changes the way you look at one of the most influential faces and, and people that we've ever had in, in the sports world. So we'll do that next. All right, now coming up, main thing I wanted to talk about today, and it's something I want to do kind of moving forward, is is anytime there's a big sports documentary that comes out, it doesn't have to be big. Uh, I'm just a sucker for a good sports documentary. It is like, it's one of my favorite things to watch. Uh, I've sat down and rewatched, you know, The Last Dance a couple times already, and that's 10 episodes. So uh, I am 100% a, a locked-in fan of uh, sports documentaries, and in particular, this one I kind of want to get into today involves similar, similarly to The Last Dance, one of the greatest athletes, arguably ever, you know, definitely in my lifetime. And that is Sir Eldrick Tiger Woods. Um, you know, it was just starting off, the name of it was just Tiger, which is just such, it was, it's the only thing you can call it. You know, there was no The Last Dance, you know, there wasn't going to be anything else that you could do with it. It's just, tiger because ultimately what this whole documentary was about was trying to figure out who tiger woods is because right off the bat my initial reaction after watching it was the tiger woods that i thought i knew that everyone in the world thought they knew was not even close to who tiger actually was at his core which was a tortured soul you know a guy who a guy who could do so much 
and give so much and captivate the world. And yet he was unable to process anything emotionally. You know, I, again, I, I just goes back to that thought, you know, we, we thought we knew this guy. He was, he's been around for so long for 20 plus years. He's been doing this going on 25 years since his first win at the masters in 97 in all actuality, you know, none of us knew him until this documentary. Now it's important to point out here that this documentary was made without, I don't want to say without Tiger's, you know, permission or anything like that, because legally they, it's based off of a book uh, written. And so they had certain licensing things that they were able to kind of uh, get away with here, but Tiger did not sign off on this documentary. This is not the last dance where, Oh, well, Michael Jordan had his hand in on everything. So we're not going to know if it's real journalism or not. And then on the opposite side, when, the, the player's not attached to it. It's like, oh, well, you know, they all probably have a vendetta against them. So what I'm going to say now is this is a legit documentary with excellent journalism, excellent sourcing. And ultimately, the biggest thing you need to know about this documentary is if you haven't seen it, this goes into what his relationship with his father was actually like. Tiger Woods was cultivated to be Tiger Woods. His dad referred to what he wanted out of Tiger as he wanted him to be a figure in the same name as Gandhi. You know, someone who would be able to bring the world together through golf, which, you know, it's kind of an insane thought to think that golf, you know, the whitest sport traditionally that we've ever had, the whitest and richest sport and most expensive sport that we have in the world uh, would be the thing that, that unites you know, people who, who are on opposite ends. Like it, it just makes no sense on its surface, but that's what he envisioned out of his son. And, you know, he would put him in a high chair and hit golf balls into a net and, and have tiger watching him just hit golf balls over and over and over and over. And Earl Woods himself was a troubled man who had seen a lot of shit and had done a lot of shit. And ultimately had his heart in the right place because of how much he loved his son. But when you look back on it, like Tiger didn't have a father figure as a dad. He had a golf coach as a dad. You know, that's what their relationship was. It was only about golf. There wasn't anything more than that, which the golf is what bonded them together emotionally. You know, it's what created this deep rooted love for one another it's it's when you see the highlights of tiger's first masters and he's walking off the green and he embraces his dad and it's this monstrous bear hug he even says that you know and when he wins it later you know down the line he says you know this is the first masters that my dad couldn't come to and i just can't wait to get home to give him a big old bear hug you see it you really do see the love but that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of issues that came from their relationship too. You know, Tiger, Tiger was not a normal kid. You know, one of the interesting things that they did is they went back and they got his high school girlfriend who they dated for three years. And when they broke up, Tiger sent a letter that was clearly written by his dad saying, you know, I don't think this is best for me. You've manipulated me into doing this. And it's like, she's just like, What? And what she was for Tiger in all reality was that sense of normalcy. It was the sense of world outside of golf. And when he was taught time after time, you know, no, you don't need that. You don't need that. What you need is golf. Eventually, he became desensitized to it. And in addition to also being an incredible fucking golfer, like he was the best in the world and he was wasn't even old enough to drink yet. You know, this guy was so dominant and he got the taste of winning. He got that blood in the water, man. And as soon as it was in, bam, like he was gone and he was in inferno. He was an enigma. He was everything that we never thought we'd see out of golf. And that is what made him such an incredible spectacle. Wright Thompson, who is an unbelievable writer, for ESPN. And he's one of their senior writers. And I think if you don't know who I'm talking about, if you heard his voice, you'd be like, oh, that guy, gotcha. 
he's written stuff in regards to golf. He's the one who wrote the Tiger Woods book that a lot of this comes from. He had a really, really powerful quote um, when he was interviewed. And there's only two, I think, two different things he said, like verbally in the actual documentary. But I stopped down and wrote this because I was, I thought it was so beautifully said. Uh, He said, mirror, mirror on the wall. We grow up like our daddy after all. Tiger became what he loathed most about his father, a philanderer. That boy loved his father with everything in him, and that father loved that boy with everything in him. They were father, son, brothers, best friends, Dr. Frankenstein and his monster. And I've always really wondered if some part of him feels like his own journey to self-realization and going from being his father's son his own man required going fully down the rabbit hole of Earl Woods. And this is the point when we start to unravel. The Tiger Woods image started to unravel. Enter Rachel Yucatal, the mistress who kind of let the cat out of the bag. It's not her fault. You know, she was in love with Tiger for all intents and purposes. And for everything we knew on the surface and everything that she said, that a lot of these women said, because Tiger was a broken man. And I don't think he was just going to these women for sex. I think he was going to these women for companionship. He was going to them to help fill voids that he never was allowed to fill. And that's a really funny double entendre, but (laughs) that's more of what it was. It was as much emotional as physical and, and, Unfortunately for Tiger, we see the story and how it developed and and his wife. You know, one of the interesting things they did in this documentary is they kept cutting back to those moments when he would walk off the master's green. And they showed the first time when he goes and hugs his dad and his mom. And the second time he goes and hugs his dad and his mom. And then a little down the line, he goes and he hugs Elon, who was his wife. And you see the love that's there. And ultimately at the end, you know, they cut to when he won it in 2019 and he goes and picks up his son and daughter and hugs them. This whole arc of what Tiger Woods is, is so emblematic of what we all, it's, it's emblematic of what we do in society to athletes. We build people up to tear them down. And they had, there's a really good quote, uh, an analogy that was used in the documentary as well about the crab in the barrel mentality. You know, one crab starts to climb out of the barrel. One of the crabs sees it, grabs him by the leg, and he pulls him back in. And that's something that crabs actually do. If you had a barrel of crabs and one of them starts to climb out, one of those other crabs is going to pull him back in. And that is what we do with society, with you know anyone, any celebrity in our society, athletes in particular. We build them up so we can tear them down and then have a redemption story to satisfy kind of our own needs of it because either it's getting bored or the guy does something, you know, like, look, Tiger, this is not like, Oh, we should just forget everything Tiger did. No, what Tiger did was fucked up and Tiger has ultimately paid the price for it. And the best part about this is the transformation you see in him towards the end towards the end of the documentary, when you're starting to get to the more modern day, right? He had not only been humbled emotionally by being embarrassed on every platform. I mean, I was thinking this, can you imagine if we were in prime Twitter era when the Tiger Woods press conference aired? I I can't, I mean, I think Twitter was around because it was, I think it was 2009, 2010 when that happened for Tiger. But oh my God, that was so much more awkward than I remember. It was horrible. It was just, he, he read it like he was a fifth grader giving a speech about, you know, George Washington. It was, it was really, really painful. And I just, I just sit and laugh. And I think about the memes. I think about the reaction. I think about how he would have just gotten absolutely trashed in modern day prime Twitter era. Along those same lines too, Rachel, you could tell, man, she's got to learn some texting rules because she got found out. You know, she got an abnormal text that came from Tiger's phone. And she was like, after he said he was going to sleep and she was just not hip to the what the texting game is, you know, where 
he gets a weird text and then he calls it's a number call, calling from tiger and he picks it and she picks up and goes like hey babe and you know elon's on the other end basically saying hold my freaking earrings about to rip this girl's head off and she subsequently and that was the night of the accident and, and everything else when she's chasing tiger with his golf club and smashing in the back of his suv window it is a really fascinating documentary and ultimately I came out of it thinking this is a guy that I, I didn't know existed. This is a Tiger Woods that I, I didn't know w- was real. I just always thought of him as this competitor, you know, this Michael Jordan, just nothing but winning. But in reality, he's the most extreme example of, you know, the dad who tears his ACL in high school and tells all of his buddies, man, I would have gone and played in college and then forces his son to then play quarterback, even if he doesn't want to. Except Earl Woods was smart enough to get his son doing it from the time he was sitting in a high chair where he you know, couldn't talk. He was just a, just a baby, just sitting there watching his dad, wanting to be like his dad. And at the end of his life, I think he struggled with it. You know, t- Tiger's role model, quote unquote, had a Winnebago that he would keep next to the putting greens that Tiger would be out practicing on. And he would coach these young women on golf. And then afterwards, Earl Woods would take him into the Winnebago and you can kind of do the math from there. And that's what Tiger grew up with. And anyone who's been on a golf course knows that's not a good place for a kid. I mean, come on, but that's not what Earl wanted for his son. And ultimately, he was able to kind of incept Tiger into believing that that was the only thing that mattered in the world. And then when he finally came back, because, you know, he had the, the back fusion and he went through all this pain and these struggles. When he came back in 2019, he wins the Masters. You know, after, after his first round, uh, they asked him, you know, how he's, how he's feeling. And he goes... Just got to keep hanging in there, and then we'll see where we're at. But I got to keep hanging in there. That's not Tiger Woods that we think of when we think of peak Tiger Woods. Peak Tiger Woods would have had no problem, none whatsoever. Peak Tiger Woods would have said, all right, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm going to win this. You know, he, he was that kind of a, of, of a – you never saw the human side of him that there might be doubt. And to me, that sounds like a man who who went through some shit and had to really, really work to get himself to the other side. And here he is, you know, 20 plus years later from the time he started on playing golf on the tour to winning the Masters at 42 and getting to do the same thing that he got to do with his dad. You know, we saw Tiger out there playing with his son. But Tiger never pushed it on him. He's been very open about that. And I think that's fascinating. It's like Ray Thompson said, you know, this was his journey into self-realization. And in order to get to that point, he had to fully understand what his dad was. And he did. His dad cheated on his mom over and over again. And Tiger knew about it. And that was what his role models were. And what was so telling about this too, was there was a gentleman who was one of Earl Woods' best friends. He was the pros at the golf club that Tiger grew up playing at. was very close with Tiger. And it's kind of one of those moments where he's getting ready to talk and he just goes, oh shit, he ain't going to like this. And he has to kind of take a moment and he like kind of breaks out of the traditional interview, you know, mold that you see in, in documentaries. And he just comes to this fuck man. And he even says, he goes, after he tells the story about his dad, he goes, I'm sorry, champ. He referred to him like he would a boxer. Again, this is a, this is just a guy who accomplished incredible things off of the back of basically no emotional skills. He could compartmentalize as well as any human being on the world. He said that to his mistresses. He said that to other golfers. And that is a skill. But it's also something that can be really dangerous to your overall mental health. And so in summation here, I'm, I'm kind of back to where I was when I started, which is 
Tiger Woods is not the guy that we all thought he was for so long. But to me, I like him more after this. I understand him more. It's never going to wipe away the stigma, and I get why Tiger will be pissed when some of this stuff comes out. It's very personal. I mean, Stevie Williams is there, his old caddy, his ex-girlfriends, ex-mistresses, old family friends. I I'd imagine that's probably going to upset him quite a bit, but it's also going to give the public a new way of looking at Tiger Woods. And that is rare. It's one of the reasons I love sports documentaries. You hear the shit that you don't always get to hear. And um, yeah, it's pretty great. We'll, we'll wrap it there with the Tiger Woods stuff. This last thought I want to, I want to dive into here as we take a drastic turn um, involves college football. And whenever I do these pods, I'm going to leave, with a final thought here, just to kind of get you thinking bigger picture about some, some stuff in the sports world here. In this past week, we saw the athletic director and the head coach at UCF, Josh Heupel's the head coach, Danny White's the AD, both go to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, which admittedly is a step up for both people. I mean, you're, you're talking about a jump from the American, which no disrespect to the American, it's a very good conference. But to the SEC, uh, Josh Heupel, who was an excellent college quarterback uh, and has done a really good job at, at UCF. And now he's going to be the head coach at Tennessee, which is a volatile job. And I wish anybody the luck, you know, it, it's right up there with some of the toughest fan bases that we have in all of sports. Something else happened this week that got me thinking. Eric Gilbert is the number five overall prospect in all of college football going into this year. He was a freshman. He went to LSU. He plays tight end. He is the highest graded, highest rated and graded tight end recruit ever. That is saying something. And if you see the kid, you get why. He's transferring in the SEC to Florida, where we just saw Kyle Pitts have arguably one of the greatest offensive seasons that a tight end has ever had in college football. Now you can say, Oh, well he's doing what's going to be best for him. And, and, and he saw the success there. And now, you know, guys can tra- you know, guys can transfer. It's uh, some, in some cases they're going to have to play right away. In other cases, you know, they're going to have to sit out. The reason I bring these two, these two switches up is because We're seeing a change in college football. We're seeing a change in the legitimate fabric of what college football and college sports have been. We're starting to see that athletes have power that they didn't used to have. If you were transferring from your school, it would have been almost inconceivable that you could transfer within the same conference, let alone from a team like LSU to Florida, to very big national brands, including a team that just won a national championship. And the other just played in the SEC championship. And if it wasn't for a thrown shoe in the LSU and Florida game, Florida could have found their way into the college football playoff. Not likely, not likely, but they could have. What Danny White and Josh Heupel are doing, moving from UCF to Tennessee, and to be clear, Danny White was hired first, and then they needed a head coach, and they hired Josh Heupel after looking at other candidates. But that's been commonplace in college sports and college football for a very long time. Coaches can come and go. You can use smaller schools to become stepping stones. It's never a problem. But God forbid a player does. God forbid a player made a mistake as an 18-year-old and realized that the culture he signed up for wasn't perfect for him. You know, we're we're talking about 18-year-old kids, all right? We're not talking about people who understand themselves, what they want out of life. And now we're seeing these guys take control, putting their fate in their own hands. This is not the kind of stuff that we would have heard in college football very often. And with the transfer portal as popping as ever, and and more and more rule changes coming up that will allow guys to transfer once without punishment without having to sit out a year, which is basically what it was. It was a punishment for 
not being happy with the decision you made when you were 18. So I say credit to them. Credit to them for trying to even the playing field. And we're still a long way. And it's not going to happen overnight. But God damn it, if Josh Heupel can look a recruit in the face and say, hey, remember, we had National Signing Day a month and a half ago, and we have the next one coming up on Wednesday. If he can recruit kids and say, I want you to come be a golden knight, come here to UCF and, and come play for me in Orlando, right next to Disney World. It'll be amazing. And all those kids sign there. Less than two months later, he's out the door. Going to Tennessee. If Josh Heupel can do that, then there is absolutely no reason that Eric Gilbert shouldn't be allowed to do that too. That's all I got for you. Read option. Listen to us twice a week. We'll be out with a Super Bowl preview. Uh, very exciting to have my boys back, Scotty and Vito. And we're going to break down the whole game as well as talk about the coaching carousel that has finally stopped spinning. Not that the Houston Texans got their shit together, kind of. But it's going to be a lot of fun. And I think we're all eagerly anticipating what should be a, a pretty legendary Super Bowl considering the, the factors and the names and the players involved. So with that, have a wonderful rest of your Monday or Tuesday or whenever you're listening to this. And check us out again later this week on The Read Option. Take it easy, everybody.